Hello, my friends, and welcome to another Robcast. I'm here in the back house with my longtime friend, Ken Dobson. Hey, everybody. We just went surfing. So We're fun. in a blissed-out post-surf state. And Kent and I... I met you when you were in high school, by the way. Yeah. I mean, this is 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And Kent and I are going to talk... Kent has a new book called Bitten by a Camel. And I'm going to ask him a few questions about the book because I, I had this deep sense when I read the book that a number of you Robcast folks are going to find this book incredibly helpful. Um, before we jump into this, a couple of things coming up. I'll be teaching at Multiversity, which is like a learning campus in the Redwoods outside Santa Cruz, California in August. Um, and I'll be doing a weekend called Your Atomic Self. You like that title? I do. Your Atomic Self, The Science of the Soul. The Science of the Soul. So um, I would love to have you. Uh, I know a bunch of you are coming, but I think you can still sign up for it. The website is 1440.org, 1440.org. Um, and then secondly, I love talking about communicating and I've been doing these events where I talk for two days about the art of communicating. How do you take ideas? How do you shape them? How do you make paragraphs? How do you give a talk? How do you memorize a talk? Some of the basics all the way to the conceptual. And I took all this content, condensed it into one audio project called Something to Say. And there's a se- it's seven hours and 45 minutes of me talking about communicating, and we just released it, the Something to Say audio. And then this fall, I'm going to do the first Something to Say workshops, which is where you bring whatever it is you're working on, talk, message, sermon, script, and then I work on it with you, and uh, we get you unstuck and on your way, and I give you some very practical tools for making things. So uh, we just put all that... all those dates and info and the something to say audio on my website. You can get all that there. And then um, we're going to do this episode with Kent. And then in August, I will be off the grid cooking up all sorts of things and doing nothing. And then um, Robcast episodes will start coming again sometime in September. We still have all sorts of ground to cover with alternative wisdom. And then we have to do the wisdom after wisdom, which will be its own series which will take us a while. So, there's a couple things going on, but now we have to talk to Kent Dobson. Kent and I worked together years ago, and so let's just start with, the book is called Bitten by a Camel, mm-hmm. um, and what I love is that it's a metaphor, but it's not, because you, <laughs> you were bitten by a camel. Indeed, yeah. And you're, you were climbing Mount Sinai. Yeah. Okay, where is Mount Sinai? Mount Sinai is in the peninsula of Egypt, so the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt, so south of Israel. And what's the peninsula like? It is this kind of vast, remote, um, pristine, kind of magical place where there is very little habitation, the only people who live in the Sinai Peninsula are Bedouin, even today, and maybe. Was there like shepherds? Yeah, yeah, they they're she- they're shepherds, or they were historically, yeah. And uh, I don't know. It's it's like one of those places you can go to and visit and have a sense that life has not changed in five thousand years, um, and there are pl- still places in the world that are this remote and vast. So that's where, that's where Mount Sinai is by tradition. No one knows, of course, because there's no information in the Bible. It just says, and they went to Sinai. So Mount Sinai is a major geographical player in yeah. the story of the Bible, but we don't actually know where it is. Yeah, and there's no, there's no mountain once you're at the traditional site of Mount Sinai. It's just one of the many hills. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody just picked one yeah. of the peaks. Yeah. It was like, let's make it that. The monks, basically. Christian Byzantine monks said, this must be it. When did you first go? Was this... This you- was the, fir- the first time I went to Mount Sinai was when I was climbed it, hoping for some sort of divine special encounter. Only to be bitten and okay. sorely disappointed. How many people cl- are pe- are lots of people Hundreds. climbing Mount Sinai? Hundreds, thousands a month, maybe. And they come from all over the world. Yeah. Is it like a weird? I picture slight Burning Man, 
slight camp, slight <laughs> weirdest religious vibes ever. Well, v- then very holy, earnest pilgrim. Do you just have the whole spectrum climbing Mount Sinai? You have a hotel at the base, so you have a sort of revolving door of tourists. But then you have a monastery, and this is like a legit monastery with, you know, Orthodox, I think Greek, probably Greek Orthodox monks who have been there for hundreds of years. And they're not there like, you know, for for tourism. They're there to pray and to be near enough to this, I don't know, ancient site. And which gives it a kind of mystique, the, the fact that monks have been praying there for hundreds of years. And so you're kind of caught up in this weird mixture of religious tourism and sincere devotion. But once you're on the mountain itself, it is a freaking mountain. It's a trail. You know, it's like you are out there and it's kind of scary in a way. I climbed it at night to, for the sunrise, which is a, kind of a traditional thing to do. And it was very cold. Okay. Why, and why were, you, why were you hiking it? I mean, you get into some of this in the book. Man, yeah, I do. Um, I don't want to give the whole book away. Yeah. But I think it's... I think I... Because the book sort of opens with this. I had this strong sense like people will find their story in a lot of this. Well, when we were working together at a church, there was a growing restlessness inside me. And some of it had to do with really simple questions like, wait a minute, who was Jesus really? Like, who really was Jesus? And what about this whole Jewishness thing? And what about Hebrew and what about what I really, there was a, there was a, it was a draw there. So uh, eventually I moved to Israel with my wife and we just had one child at the time to go to graduate school. And um, near the end of my first degree there is when I climbed Mount Sinai. So I was at the end of graduate school, basically thoroughly confused um, as one tends to be if they really take biblical studies seriously. Because um, you essentially went to the white hot center yeah. of almost like if I could just get to the source or the root or the center. That was the draw. Mm-hmm. Then I would be, oh, now I get it. Yeah. And right. instead it had the opposite effect. Yeah, if I could get to the holy places, if I could walk where Jesus walked, if I could get to Jerusalem, if I could get to Sinai, then I don't know, I guess I'd be closer to God or I'd, stumble upon the truth or something like that. And um, and this was not, I mean, I can be cynical and there's plenty of things once you get into biblical studies to be, especially if you were raised in, inside the Christian fundamentalist evangelical world that I was raised in, um, you start to realize, oh, the Bible is not what I was told and the Christian religion and the way doctrines were formed is not exactly what I was spoon-fed. Um, but cynicism aside, I was very genuinely, seriously wondering who is God? What is God? Who is Jesus? What am I doing? And I don't know, climbing Mount Sinai was much more of a very genuine expression of my own, uh, religious hunger and just for some kind of contact, some kind of something, there must be some meaning, purpose, direction, a will, Maybe God has a will, a plan even. Even though I was like a bit skeptical, I, I, I really, that's what I was longing for. I, that's, at least that's what I thought I was longing for. By the yeah. way, I should say, editor's note, Mount Sinai is where in the Bible story, Moses gets the Ten Commandments. Yes. This is where the divine speaks with a mass of humanity. Like, mm. this is the place where heaven and earth come together. Yeah. Like this for th- literally thousands and thousands of years, this mountain in so many ways is seen as like a seriously thin place. Yeah, and there are two Sinai stories in the Bible. One is Moses, what you just described, and the other is Elijah, who goes there by himself. And there's the storm and fire and all this kind of wildness. And the text says, and God was not in any of that. And then there's this like sound of silence, kind of whisper, however you want to translate this odd Hebrew phrase, but he has kind of like an inner quietness and somehow that is God. So you have these two dramatic, really polar opposites. Yeah. One is like thunderous, I've got 
tablets of stone and the other right. is this inner The mountain whisper. shook. And the yeah. other one's like, yeah, it's like a whisper. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you get to the top. Yeah. Sun rises. Do you have an experience? No. Is suddenly everything well, clear? <laughs> suddenly it all makes sense? I had an experience. I had several experiences. I experienced a kind of massive disappointment. I experienced what I would call now, I couldn't quite see it at the time, but what I would say was a growing wedge between what I was supposed to believe and what my actual experience was. What is my actual experience? What do I, what am I actually feeling and thinking? What is my experience of God, if I even have one? And then how the thing is supposed to work. That drove the wedge deeper between these worlds, which, I don't know, sent me on another kind of journey. What my tribe has said I was supposed to think, feel, and experience, and then what I've, it's actually been like. Yeah. And those are vastly different things, and you are like, I have to be honest about that. It's really hard to admit this gap. And some people never get around to admitting it, because they have inside them a kind of loyal soldier that says, you can't go there. It's interesting. I underlined that part. I want to talk. Let's talk about loyal soldier because that was one of my first parts here. I want to talk about because you do this really interesting description of the of the. Here it is, page twenty-seven. Yes, please say something about loyal soldier. Well, it's a metaphor um, (laughs) that describes these inner voices that I think we all have that usually start off with should statements. And the job of the loyal soldier, the loyal soldier gets developed in early childhood, and it's trying to keep you safe. It's how you should think, believe, dress, act in order to be safe or safe enough in your your childhood, in growing up, especially if there's any kind of trauma, hardship, suffering, um, here's how to be safe. And the thing about the loyal soldier is that it works. And in a religious context, it works. It taught, it really kept me safe by believing in the right kind of God, saying the right kind of prayers, doing the right kind of baptismal waters, um, learning the right kind of language, how to speak about being religious, because that's the only way to be safe, especially if you're a kid. And absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's simply a natural part of growing up, but the loyal soldier still operates into adulthood. And sometimes even gets louder, especially when any kind of existential or personal crisis begins to push against your worldview. Then the loyal soldier wakes up and says, don't go any further. Don't, don't doubt. Don't question. Go back to church. Read the Bible more intensely this time. Um, listen to Christian radio. You know, any technique that will keep you safe inside this uh, framework, category. So, um, it took me a while to see that I too had these loyal soldier voices that were trying to protect me. And I had to sort of thank them for their service. Um, but to say, I need to grow up and I'm going to be honest about my experiencing and keep going. You say the loyal soldier can't save us. The loyal soldier's battle plans are for old battles. They're out of date, and the loyal soldier's ammunition is worthless. Yeah. It, that's the way it is in, in adulthood. Not worthless as a kid. And, I mean, you, whatever your loyal soldier strategies were, they kept you safe enough. Yeah. Um, but if you keep following them, you'll never grow up. You'll never, you'll never step into the unknown, which is the big archetypal story of transformation and growing up, which is you have to leave home, you have to step out, and which means you have to um, somehow have the courage to thank the loyal soldier for his, his or her hard work and go for it. Thank you. You got me this far down the road. Mm-hmm. But this isn't going to be... Okay, now, archetypes... I, uh, I feel like they're, they undergird, uh, can, for those who, do, who when, you, when you say that, what do you mean? For those who are like, what, what's that? Because in the book, you touch on it here and there. Archetypes? Yes. What about it? Um, for people who are like, what does that mean? What are we talking about? What are, and then the hero's journey. Okay. Archetypes are just patterns, I think. Patterns that are rooted in images, like the warrior is an archetype. 
Um, and it works in the deep unconscious, in the psyche. And it's probably passed on in the way genetic codes are passed on. At least this is the academic yeah. th theory about this sort of thing. Um, and that's why we so connect with contemporary movies that have things like princesses and princes and warriors and kings. These are all ar archetypes. And they, they have a certain um, uh, amount of metaphoric and mythic power just by referencing them. The Bible's full of archetypes. Um, and I think in some sense, uh, the hero's journey is an archetypal pattern of growing up, which is leaving home, discovering who you are, and coming back to the village to serve, or coming back home to serve, or back to the city to serve. Um, and, and it's why it shows up in really every freaking great story, not because that's what makes it a great story, but because the pattern itself is true. People who have grown up have left home base in some way, discovered seeds of who they were, and sometimes had divine encounters, discovered bits and pieces of the divine, and have come back to the village to serve. Um, that's, that's Jesus. He's, you know, goes 40 days and 40 nights into the wilderness. Like, he leaves, he makes his parents mad. He, his family thinks he's crazy. Um, and yet he discovers seeds of some sort of who he, his true self, and comes back to the village and serves. I don't know. Um, something like that. So, I don't know. There, I think, um, at least for me, the, the way one reads, the way I would read the Bible now, or even read stories now, um, that's where my, that's what my ear is tuned into. What, what are the patterns here that are working on us? Not what's factually true or not, but what archetypal pattern is working on us and opening up our own souls or hearts uh, to be formed and shaped in these kind of uh, mystical and mythic ways. Uh, that's very well said. Uh, uh, and subconscious. Yeah. Because it's interesting you say that because of how many movies require a suspension of belief. Mm -hmm. Like your brain has to, not shut off, but your brain has to be like, we're underwater, everybody can breathe fine, we're in outer space, no one needs a helmet. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's a bunch of things about the setting where, like, there's a raccoon that's talking. Mm -hmm. Okay. And yet, it's moving you at all these other mm -hmm. levels. Yeah. Yeah, something of your everyday ego, rational, strategic mind is turned off, I think, a little bit. Or at least disrupted for, for one to sort of sink into the unconscious or the... Where these, where these patterns are stored, where these archetypes reside. That's so strong. Okay. Um, we need to go back to the mountain because you're coming down the mountain when yeah. you meet the camel? Yeah. Yeah, I have this moment at the top where I'm just confused. Like, why am I up here? I try to pray. I don't get any clarity. I want to know, should I become an academic? Should I go back home to church world? Just something, some direction. And I'm on the way down, and that's when I'm attacked violently. By a by this, camel. By this massive beast of burden, <laughs> yeah. Whose job was to <laughs> haul, haul tourists up to the top at night. And, and it bites you. It bites me. It swallows my entire arm and, and yanks me around like a dog with a chew toy. Is anybody around? No, no one's around. Someone has left a camel on the side of Mount Sinai alone. The freaking Bedouin. Yeah, Untented. They're, yeah, they're just going for a cigarette or something, leaving their camels around, and it just attacks me. I mean, it just, it chose me, in a way. There were hundreds of people, probably, or dozens, at least, that were walking by this camel. <laughs> just <laughs> The camel chose me. <laughs> yeah. And why did that image, why did that experience, obviously, people have to read the book, but the biting of the camel becomes, it's a literal thing that becomes a sort of metaphor. Yeah, the story wouldn't go away for me. And that's when I knew, um, it just kept surfacing, like what happened to me? And really what, what was happening to me while I was in Jerusalem? Like, why so many disappointments? 
I mean, you can't make up a story like this where you go and you are hoping for a divine encounter. Instead, you get bitten. You know, what does that mean? You want to know. But I couldn't make any sense of it. It yeah. didn't have a meaning. It I couldn't turn it around into a nice little lesson like, hey, everybody. Right. No, but it just had to, had to work May on you me. be was, bitten by a camel. Yeah, yeah. No, it was breaking me down. And that's what had to happen to me. Um, and it was, it was part of the equation. And I started realizing... I think slowly that I was going to have to pay attention to these places that were hurting and not, and that I couldn't make quick sense of them if um, they were going to, I don't know, if they were really going to work on me, work on me in the, in the sense of change, uh, like the way a, a river um, changes the rocks in the stream bed. It just takes a long time. And that's, I had, this story just kept coming back around. In fact, I really didn't tell anyone at first. You'd think I'd come back down and be like, you're not going to believe it. I haven't even, but I could Did you tell Mandy? Yeah, I told, I told my, yeah, I told Mandy, my wife, and she was like, what? Yeah, but I, I didn't say it in any dramatic way. It was just like, this is what happened. And I was almost like embarrassed, really. And so it just, <laughs> 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 yeah, and I don't know, and. Eventually, I told an Israeli friend of mine, and he laughed so hard that he was crying. I was like, oh. I, I, I couldn't even see, in a way, even the, the obvious ironies that are built into... I couldn't see that. It was, I was too close to it. <laughs> I was too close to it in the, in, in the, because I, I, it was so genuine. My desire was so genuine in terms of, who are you, God? What is this thing? Am I religious? Is, there, is this, any of this real? Is there something, is there a spiritual life? Does God talk to people? I mean, uh, that's how genuine I was in my desire to, I don't know, for contact, something like that. So that's why this story, I mean, this happened to me like 10 years ago, and I just wrote about it last year. I had to like even test it out. Like I, I started talking a bit about this story, you know. That's, I really think though, for, for, for many people, the big events in life, they take time. They take time to work on you. At least that's been my experience. I think you any don't kind of know what it means right in the moment. That's right. Yeah. You just know that someday you might know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Something like that. Mm -hmm. I had a distinct life-changing encounter six years ago that at the time I just sobbed and literally sobbed. I couldn't stop sobbing. I didn't know that my tear ducts were, were that abundant. Mm. And I came home, and I distinctly remember saying to Kristen, I had this experience, and I don't know what it means right now, mm -hmm. but I know it means something, and it might take a while. Yeah. Like, even in the moment, realizing this one's going to take a while. Yeah. Grief is like that. That happened to me, too, just a couple years ago, right before I left Mars Hill, about a year before. I remember just crying and crying and crying and crying, and some, something opened up some well of grief opened up that I didn't even know was there and I could not tell you what it was about. I wasn't thinking about a person, a situation. It was almost as if like I was grieving the fact that I was out of touch with my own life. That's probably the way, that's probably the best I could describe it even now. Um, but I also had a similar feeling that something important just opened up and it's going to take a while. So it is painful and tear-inducing, but it is also how things open up. Yeah. That's how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you also talk about the bombing in this section, right around the bitten by a camel section. You're living in Jerusalem. You, you hear, you feel... Um, I'm trying to think. Um, you felt the blast... Yeah. It says, you're working on a paper for class. Mm. And yeah, I moved to Jerusalem in 2003, and this was in the middle of the Intifada. And I moved naively, really. I mean, I didn't really, I didn't know anything about Jerusalem. And I'm not Jewish, and I didn't grow up around this stuff other than I was told, like, Israel is awesome by, you know, people like Jerry Falwell. Um but other than that, I really didn't know anything. And so I was in the middle, we were living in the middle of a conflict, a, a very, very complicated conflict. Yet, we had to go to the grocery store and, you know, figure out 
how to spell yogurt in Hebrew and how do you get groceries home and um, how do you just get through everyday life. Um, and I'm in the middle of graduate school and there are things like bus bombings and cafe bombings that just would happen occasionally. And some, first they were far away and then they were closer and then finally one was down the street from my apartment from where we were living. And it was uh, horrifying, chilling, and kind of numbing. Because what do, you, what do you do? I mean, I suppose you get on a plane and go home. I had options that um, Israelis and Palestinians probably didn't have. But um, you just, I don't know, you, you pick up the phone, you call your friends, they call you, were you, you know, everybody okay? And um, you, you go back to work and back to school and back to the grocery store. And I ate in that cafe you know, six months later after they, you know, put it back it together. Mm -hmm. You say here, the shock of the bombing unearthed a lot of my own internal hurt and fear, which I'd been trying hard to ignore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what was I, what was I saying there? Uh, well, in some ways, fear that was rooted in questions about the arbitrariness of life. Yeah. Yeah. That has a lot to do for me that with this idea that God has a plan. I mean, that's what I was uh, told, taught, and tried to believe. And what I mean by plan is, I mean, even if you don't like this metaphor, that's what's behind it, that there's a God, a puppet God up there that's pulling the strings. And everything, everything happens for a reason as part of this master plan. And just with enough time, this will all make sense and you don't understand this happened, but then this happened and it's kind of like this special math that only God knows about. And if you just believe enough, you can, that's what was collapsing for me. And that's part of what I mean about the fear and grief that was unearthed. I just could not accept this anymore. I didn't have an alternative yet, but I, I knew I couldn't go with this anymore. I could not say this was part of God's plan. This was God's will. I just, that was it. I'd rather not believe in God than believe in a kind of puppet being up there that's just uh, toying with the universe. And you know what he felt like doing? He kind of, he thought, you know, uh, the suicide bomber, he's going to go into the pizza store, but you know what? The pizza shop, I think the cafe is a little better. And maybe, you know, just down the street, he allowed, quote, allowed that to happen. I just can't accept that. And just being honest with that is hard because you don't know, um, especially if you're inside a religious community, you feel totally homeless once you leave the reservation. Once you say, I can't accept basic things that we're all supposed to agree on, then you're, you're, you're launched out into the wilderness. I mean, that's another archetype. You know, you leave Egypt and you're like wandering around in the wilderness, um, hoping you'll stumble into an oasis here or there, but you really actually just feel lost. Um, yeah. Okay. You then, as the book unfolds, you take us through all of these, essentially, the ways that your tribe taught you to navigate the world that mm -hmm. no longer worked. Mm-hmm. And you begin to show us, uh, it's like the river was no longer a river, the mountain was no longer a mountain. And then you begin to show us how the river started to be a river again, the mountain started to be a mountain again. You know what I mean? You start to show us mm. how new understandings were birthed mm. that you could actually do, that you could actually live with, that actually helped. Yeah, I try to. Mm -hmm. And one of the, um, chapter three, you are not a problem to God. Mm. You go into... Um, all of this, you have a section called the fallacy of original sin. Yeah. And I know that's a term that a lot of people like original sin. Um, and you go into this as a fallacy. Mm. Can you say, can you say a bit about that? Yeah. Cause I was like this, I, I had a profound sense. This is going to help a ton of people who are handed that view of humanity. Yeah. A lot of people have handed, been handed this view that the moment you come out of the womb, you are defective you are broken, you are a problem to God. And actually, you're, in its worst forms, you're such a problem that God, just to deal with you, is going to have to torture you 
for eternity. That's how corrupt your essence is. Now, that's disguised behind a lot of language that God loves you and cares for you, um, has a plan for you. But just so you know, the core of who you are is a problem and you can't do anything about it unless you try our magic formulas. Believe, say, mm -hmm. pray, confess, etc. Exactly. And what I realized was a couple things very slowly. And actually, this is one of the questions. My, one of my big questions in even writing this book is, do people change? I still have that question. And what does, what does it look like for one to, one's worldview to change? And I mean it in the most simple sense, like one's view of the world. What does that look like? Well, at least for me, it's complicated and it took a long time. It's, and, and it's still, my worldview is still changing. And that's why I try to, in the book, try to say, among other things, you are not a problem to God, but here are five or six or seven things that were part of my worldview that unraveled and collapsed and maybe little seeds of something are growing in its place. But I think this is one of the, I hope that this chapter helps people with that view. Not only do I think that that's false, I actually don't think it's a part of um, good Christian spirituality, period. It's, if you look hard enough, even in turn, in, into theology and church fathers and blah, 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 it's not the only voice. Original sin is not. It's, it's, it happened uh, to be born at a certain time and took on a kind of weight, but it's certainly not the only view of the world. And it's not the, if you want to go to the Bible, it's not the, it's not the uh, Hebrew Bible view of human personhood. The Bible starts with human beings uh, being created in the image of God, which means that they are, uh, uh, there's a kind of preciousness to being a human being and as just uh, being born into the world of nature. Like all things are good, so are human beings. And I guess I, I came to believe that, that there is an essence um, inside every human being that they can't get rid of, a kind of divine DNA that they're born with. And that is such a different starting place yes. than what I was handed. And what I was handed, I think, has to end. That's why I didn't want to just come out with a book that said, well, yeah, there are kind of two sides and, you know, <laughs> I can't wait. No, I'm saying original sin doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's totally unhelpful. And for me, it had to be abandoned and, and rejected. Um, and something has to be put in its place. And what is in its place? I think original goodness is okay. I don't mind original messiness. I'm not naive about human beings. And I'm not naive about the capacity that human beings have for evil. It's there. But I also believe in a kind of uh, capacity for goodness that you can't get rid of. I don't think human beings are a problem to God the moment they are conceived. That's to me, is absurd and no longer helpful. I love this story that you tell right in that section about meeting with a spiritual director. Mm. I wonder if we had the same, I went to the same, that was down the street from my house, right? Yeah. At Dominican Center? Mm. Um, and you tell about despair, doubt, anger, you complain, like you tell about unloading on this nut, lovely, you call her a, a lovely nun. <laughs> Good name for a band, by the way, Lovely Nuns. You um, tell about sitting down with this nun. You just pour all of this out. And as the tears flowed, she just smiled at me. Then she said, calm down. What you are going through is normal. Mm. You're Okay. Everything in the spiritual life takes time and happens slowly. You're a good person, and you're lucky, you're lucky to have such diverse experiences. I know. It just slayed me when she said that. Uh, yeah. I feel like that, I mean, if you're going to get a tattoo. You know <laughs> that's a mean? long one. But that's yeah. a long one. What you're going through is normal. Yeah. You're okay. Everything in the spiritual life takes time and happens slowly. Yeah. You're a good person, and you're lucky to have such diverse 
experiences. Yeah. This is, this is having my own goodness mirrored back to me. And that's what I think good spiritual directors, therapists, teachers, friends, um, mentors do. Or partners, spouses, they mirror back to us what we can't see. And that's what happened. That's what started happening to me. And I needed a mirror because the, what the church had been reflecting back to me was not such beauty. And I don't know, I, I needed, I need a little help seeing, seeing something I couldn't see. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that is, you're lucky to have such diverse experiences. Yeah, and, and <laughs> the, the other funny thing about that is that everything was so like, uh, such a problem, you know, God was a problem, theology was a problem, the Bible was a problem, you know, where do I live? Jerusalem, Michigan, you know, round and round and round, everything. Heavy. Heavy, heavy, heavy. yeah, serious, infused with all kinds of seriousness. And she just saw that as, how lucky, how lucky you got to live in Jerusalem. How interesting. It, it did lighten the load. And I was like, oh, maybe, maybe she's right. <laughs> maybe it is, maybe, maybe this, uh, even the crises and the pain and even being bitten, um, there's a gift there. There's seeds of uh, something um, really amazing in all of that. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, man. Okay, a couple more. Could we do a couple more? Yeah. Because uh, I underlined, I read a digital version, then I got this version from you and ended up underlining way more. Um, you say page 70 it is deeply spiritual to say, I'm not sure. It is holy to say, I don't really care. It is downright prophetic to say, it's not an important question. Yeah. Well, that particular, uh, it's not an important question came from a conversation I had with the rabbi about, yes. about the afterlife. And, you know, I just... Will you please tell that story again? I, I don't know if you told it last time you're on the podcast. I may have. I love that story. The short version is, I said to, the, to my uh, professor, professor I had, it was a rabbi, if you were to die, would you go to heaven? Would you know for sure that you would go to heaven? Which was like the only question that mattered uh, to my tribe of Christians when I was a kid. He says, not an important question. And I just was like leveled, you know, I was like, like confused, like, well, I mean, it kind of, no, it is. I'm like trying to defend. It's like, In the no, tribe it, you came from, this was the question. It's the question. Everything else was periphery to this question. Eternal, this, one's eternal destiny. And this yeah. rabbi's like, mm, it's not, not, not an important, important question. question. Yeah, and then when I press him <laughs> further, he's like, not, it's not an important question to me or to my tradition or to Judaism. It's just, it's, and um, yeah, there's, so there's, there, that also lightened lighten the load for me because some part of me knew that he was right. Yeah, I knew it was the wrong question, but it was even better to say it's not an important question, which is, which is in a way is a much more gracious way of putting it. So then what are the important questions? Yeah. Um, yeah. But to say I don't know, I think is the beginning of faith for me. To say I don't know. Because... I think most people who um, are growing up in a kind of religious tradition, even if they're not, they're told um, that faith is, is really about having a certain set of beliefs, and we're going to come to these beliefs, and we're going to argue about these beliefs or ideas about God, and we're going to call that faith. And we even have books that are, that are, are trying to, to say that, that these are actual just facts, actually. Um, and there's evidence for these things. And uh, we're going to put that forth and we're going to cling to those. And that's what we're going to call faith. But I think faith begins, uh, maybe a deeper faith begins by saying, actually, I don't know. In my own experience, I don't know. And what, I, what surprised me is that inside the Christian tradition, inside Christian mystical tradition, I don't know is really the beginning of the deeper story or the deeper stream um, or the second uh, part of the faith story. And um, I don't know. I, I, so why am I saying that to people? I'm saying that because if people are, are bumping into something like, I don't know, then I would say you're on the right track. Um, 
if you are clinging to your own certainty or if you're uh, if the people around you are are demanding certainty I'd say that's not a path that's going to take you very far that's a very small container that your soul has already outgrown you just haven't realized it yet and um, yeah so a bit of you know um, yeah um, Aquinas. Aquinas said, the pinnacle of the knowledge of God is to know that we don't know God. The pinnacle of the knowledge of God is to know that we don't know God. Now, that's someone who has bumped into their I don't know. And, but just to say, this is part of the spiritual life, or if you don't like that, this is part of being, just being a human being if you care about meaning. Meaning and truth bumping into the vastness of something like I don't know or something like the pinnacle of the knowledge of God is to know that we don't know God is just incredible. That is like a wide stream. That's a big playing field. Uh, that's a gracious playing field rather than this narrow kind of uh, pin point that we have to try to balance upon about, to right. stay inside the the tribe that God likes. You you talk about I you say I discovered almost by accident the apophatic tradition. Yeah. And you make the distinction between cataphatic yeah. and apophatic. Right. Can you walk people through those? Because I I know lots of people will find this distinction very helpful. Well yeah. I, the the cataphatic is making positive statements about God. God is God Father, is God is Trinity, God is... Well, the apophatic is coming at God through the negative or through absence. So, God is not light. God is not a being. God is... God doesn't even exist in the way we understand existence. That's the apophatic tradition. Because it's, it realizes its limitations. No language is adequate, you're right. No language is... No words are adequate. And I'm not saying you can start there because... We all need images. We need, well, what is God like? Yeah, that's the starting place. Um, but somewhere along the line, what, what saves us from our own narcissism is saying, and God is not that. Otherwise, we end up serving, we end up bowing down to something that we created, our own language of God, our own certainties about God. God is a man in the sky and he sits on a throne and, and we bow down before that. Meanwhile, uh, we're just worshiping a kind of idol that we've created in our own imaginations and with our own words and doctrine statements. But that's the great irony of the, of the, the best of the Christian tradition is that it pulls the rug out from underneath itself and says, no, and don't, don't bow down before such idolatry, the, ide the idolatry of, of your own words. So God is not a father because no language is adequate. God is, I love the idea that you can say um, God exists on the one hand and on the other hand say, and, and God can't exist. There's no way God can exist in the way we understand existence. Because however, there, if there is a divine, that divine will transcend whatever categories we've come up with to define existence. What else would God be than, than <laughs> a, a transcendence of our own <laughs> kind he, of limited view? You write, this kind of mystical spirituality is Christianity at its most mature, yeah. and we all have some growing up to do. Mm. And then you say, this sort of tension and paradox rang my bell. Mm -hmm. Something deep inside me said, you can trust this, go as far as you can, far as you can even if you don't know where you're going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, there's this interesting movement in the book where your tribe hands you this way of seeing things. It doesn't work. You get bitten by a camel. You're shedding all these layers. Mm -hmm. You're just leaving things behind in the middle of the road. Mm. But what's helping you step forward is this growing awareness that your own tradition has all of these categories and concepts and practices that are helping you move forward that you hadn't heard before. Yeah, I get little glimpses. Um, and some of them come straight out of, the, like you're saying, right out of the Christian tradition. Um, I use a metaphor at the beginning of the book about getting into the West Bank, having to cross over in the West Bank. So, oh, yeah. Um, and what I realized 
that it's difficult to cross over to the West Bank. I, I you used to be able to just drive to Bethlehem to get whatever you wanted, chicken and buy a Christmas tree and whatever you needed. And but once the wall was up and once the security tightened, you just had to lighten the load and not drive a car and not bring a bag if you wanted to you know, pass through security easily. That's what I felt like was happening to me in a metaphoric sense. The, the load had to be, I had to be without any baggage if I was going to cross over into the next country. But along the way, I kept getting little hints that this seems like heresy, but here's a little, here's a little seed that maybe you're not insane. Maybe, maybe this is part of the deeper pattern and the deeper truths that, that, that your tradition does know something about. And it's not just about my tradition, meaning I came, I, I came from the Christian world, but um, that others have gone before you. Or, or like Joseph Campbell said, the labyrinth is thoroughly known. So whatever this thing is, voices, people, personalities, teachers, heroes, they've gone before and they've left. Um, they've mapped the territory. Yeah, but they've mapped the labyrinth. <laughs> so it's not, and the labyrinth, you feel lost when you're wandering back and forth inside the labyrinth, but they've, they've left little breadcrumbs on the trail. And, and just to trust, um, tr just to, to have the courage to trust and keep going, um, that's what these little seeds became for me. Little voices and, and glimpses that I wasn't totally insane, um, but that, the, that people had gone on this kind of risky path before. So, yeah, something like that. Um, what, anything else you want to say about the book? I could just keep going, and eventually we would have gone all the way through the book, and yeah. then people would be like, oh, I've already read that book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I guess... <laughs> I don't know. What, what would I... I think so many people, whether they think of themselves as religious or not, um, if they're in, even loosely spiritual, feel like um, they're having to shed layers to get, get, I don't mean clean, I just mean whatever burdens they've been carrying about the way the world should be, that it's important to set these down. And I'm, I'm trying to give some language uh, for people for certain ideas about God that can be set down. And I guess um, what I also want to say is, first of all, that's not an insane idea that you would set things down and leave. Very traditional idea, actually. That's a very traditional idea. In some senses, you have to leave the, the tradition or traditions that you grew up in if you want to grow up. But the journey is perilous. It is scary. It's not as simple as, I'm going to leave this old worldview. I'm going to quickly adopt another one. That's called converting to another religion. That's called, I don't like evangelical Christianity. Now I'm an Episcopal, you know, or I don't like, and you just swap out one set of um, beliefs for ones that you're finding a little more palatable. I don't like interpretation A. I like interpretation B because it kind of fits it just makes me feel better inside. No, what I'm talking about is actually setting something down and beginning the real wandering. Um, but just what I'm trying to say is that that's not insane. That is, uh, that's what the path looks like. That is the Exodus narrative. That is leaving Egypt, which is comfortable place to stay and pots of meat and onions and a job, but it's also slavery. But once you leave, you want to go back. And all I'm trying to say to people is keep going, keep going. And here are a few little gems that, that I get. I mean, they're coming from my personal experience that, that helped me, um, that helped me uh, keep going on this kind of wild adventure. So you lead retreats. Mm. Are there always, are there retreats now scheduled? Yeah, I have some retreats. I, I occasionally lead trips to Israel and um, I lead retreats that are a combination of um, going out into the natural world and engaging in certain practices and then conversations about maps and metaphors and images and um, conversations about what it means to be a human being and what is the soul and 
what is the spirit and what is the ego and how do these things have a conversation? And um, so, yeah, those are the kinds of retreats that I've been leading lately. And um, yeah, occasionally I do some teaching and speaking. And And people can also do like one-on-one sessions with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just Dealing with all the same stuff. So people who are like, wow, I am leaving. This is terrifying. This is, you work with people on these exact issues. Yeah, I try to. I, I'm, I'm just attempting to be a, a good mirror, like the good mirrors in my life. Here's what I'm seeing, and um, here's what I fiercely believe about you and your human potential. Um, and also, too, I, you know, I'm trying to be, I'm not trying to be, I hope I am a voice um, that believes in, in, in human beings and believes that the world desperately, desperately needs us to grow up and be generative, soulful human beings for creative, innovative change in the world. And it's going to take all of our fierce attention for that to happen because almost everything in our culture is screaming about a kind of adolescent attachment to persona, possessions, power, fame, um, clinging to it desperately. And that's called, that's a kind of junior high view of the world. What we need are adults and we need some freaking elders in the world. So I want to, I mean, that's, I mean, I want to grow up myself, but um, that's what I think um, spirituality can do for people is help them grow up into, into being vibrant, uh, creative souls in the world that bring about um, change. Don't you? Oh, what else are you doing <laughs> besides trying to help people, you know? Grow Correct. Up. Yeah. Grow up and wake up. Um, where do people, f- uh, people, Ken Dobson? KenDobson.com. KenDobson.com, yeah. all yep. this. And my book's available on Amazon and click and it will arrive at your doorstep. Bitten by a Camel, Ken Dobson, your first book, the first of many. You're a very good writer. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to more of these. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming to the back house. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's very, very exciting. I have, I have a strong sense that this book, especially for lots of people, is going to be like, oh, somebody put language on it. Thank you. Yes. Thanks. Okay. Grace and peace, my friends. <laughs>